I'm Alex Shaw. I'm Sharon Shaw. And, and welcome, welcome to, to School of Movies. <laughs> Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Now, normally I'd play you the trailer, but the one minute, five second Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom trailer is terrible. It's all visual. It's just the Indiana Jones theme with a montage of things that happen in Temple of Doom. A couple of muttered asides. There's nothing to it. It's terrible. So instead, because I like the song, I like the sequence, and it's a really great way to enter, let's have Anything Goes. Sung in Mandarin by Kate Capshaw. us once again is our co-pilot for the Spielberg season, Chris Chipman of the Tangent Brothers podcast. Hello, Chris. Hey, how are you doing, Alex and Sharon? Surviving. And at the moment, that's about as good as it gets, folks. The year was 1984. 
George Lucas had just completed his Star Wars trilogy with Return of the Jedi. Steven had had a double triumph with Raiders and then E.T., but then experienced a horrendous tragedy filming the Twilight Zone movie, which we have talked about on a Patreon-exclusive quick review. It involved the on-set death of multiple actors, including children, and though director John Landis was in charge of that sequence, Spielberg, as producer, felt no small amount of personal responsibility. It changed how he saw the making of movies, and he later urged Hollywood to abandon the era when the director was the only person who could yell, cut. George Lucas had just divorced his wife of 14 years, Marcia Lou Griffin, the editor who managed to rescue Star Wars from the mess it was after filming. Stephen had broken up with his wife, actress Amy Irving, five years previously in 1979, but they had remained friends, and he was about to rekindle that romance this year. It would not last, and by 1989, he and Irving were separated for good, and around about the time of Last Crusade, he married the starlet of this film, Kate Capshaw. Interestingly, Irving and Steve bore a son named Max, who directed Jaws 19, this time it's really personal, in Super 3D, in the alternate and frankly better 2015 of Back to the Future Part 2. Now, with Raiders, all... By the way, what is it with directors calling their sons Max? We've got Landis, Spielberg, and Brooks. Brooks. Now, with Raiders, all we needed to do for that show was to watch the film and list its embarrassment of riches when it came to simple, effective storytelling and technical excellence. Here with Temple, which we watched shortly after that episode aired, we were lumbered with a film so drastically different in tone and quality in approach and execution that this is in fact the second attempt that we have made at covering it. We gave up the first time because I didn't just want to spend an hour moaning about how bad this thing is. I, I, we were all geared up and I was just like, okay, we're ready. We're sitting down to watch Temple. And then about halfway through, I was like, Chris, I'm, I'm sorry, man. I don't, I don't know if we can even do this or how really we can do day. this. I was in a really foul mood yeah. and I just had but you no know, time for this. That's what's great about, you know, obviously I came into your, your community. You had created a little later than a lot of people, but I like the similarities between you know, the people we share and, you know, just this whole online community we seem to have found hmm. within this, you know, podcasting world that I'd rather have someone come and say that to me. You know, I'm just not here for this, man. Like, what what's the point of sitting down and having a conversation if it isn't, you know, re- re- whether we like the movie or not, if it's not going to be fruitful or good, yeah. that's going to come through the listeners. They're not going to like listening to it. Absolutely. Is it sparking joy? Yeah. If not... If not joy, what could we talk about? So, you know, I've been doing this for long enough now that I've got a feel for how we can do these kind of things. And it took a while, but then when I came around to it, I was like, right. Instead, we are like what we did was we went away and we did a show on Last Crusade so that we could get the other really great Indiana Jones film done. And then we came back to Temple. And now we're going to do a bit of, oh, we hate movies and take Temple of Doom to task. Now, as with their show, it is okay to like or even love Temple of Doom. But we are going to spank this monkey until it squeals. The amount of pure hatred and dismissal for Kingdom of the Crystal Skull is kind of baffling when you look at this as the middle part of this trilogy. 
It is clear that the odd-numbered Indiana Jones films are very Spielberg-y, and the even-numbered ones have the fingerprints of George Lucas all over them. There are many narrative and storytelling reasons speculated upon for why Temple is technically a prequel set before Raiders, but the easiest answer I've heard is that Lucas made it a prequel simply so that the Nazis wouldn't be the villains. And that led to some of its problems. I saw a video the other day on YouTube claiming that Star Wars cannot survive without George Lucas. I found it preposterous, as Disney have made two absolutely stunning Star Wars movies, two that were very popular despite their weaknesses, and one that was kind of a dud for everyone. You can make up your own mind which ones those are. Meanwhile, Star Wars barely survived everything George did to it between 1996 and 2012, from Han Han shooting first right the way through to McClunky. McClunky. If you look at all the Star Wars films made under him, there are difficulties in handling female characters because it feels like George doesn't understand women at all. Alongside this, when he didn't have a great screenwriter like Lawrence Kasdan there, there were structural problems all over the shop, and the way that foreign cultures are handled reeks of adulation of 1930s racial ignorance and colonialism. This was the guy who made Watto and Jar Jar and the Fu Manchu Neomoidians. As you know, our blockade is perfectly legal. It's Watto who cannot survive without George, because no other fucker would ever put that offensive bucket full of Jewish, Arabic, and Italian stereotypes on screen. My trick's gonna work on me. Only money. Now, it's possible that a good writing team and Stephen being able to say no to George's ideas could have saved Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and made it on a par with the other two. Unfortunately, Steve was, like I said, still reeling from the worst thing that a director can imagine. And Kazdan, who wrote Raiders, turned down this second gig after reading the treatment that George wrote, leading the producers to bring in Willard Hike and Gloria Katz, who, two years later, penned another foul Lucas adventure that flopped like a dead duck, Howard, a new breed of hero. You may have heard of it, although probably not. <laughs> now, I'm long past ranting at George for ruining things. He gave the world exponentially so much more than he took away and i will be grateful to him for that forever but those little peccadillos inside his brain pan are most definitely worth calling out when something like this is on screen it is potentially a fun way to spend two hours and by no means a truly terrible film but i contend on balance that it is a bad spielberg film and it's a fact that he regrets many of the decisions made in its production. He doesn't look back on this one with the fondness of uh, the other of the first two of the trilogy. Mm. Uh, we don't like we haven't watched the extras on uh, Crystal Skull yet. It might surprise us. <laughs> Ironically, the boy telling me Star Wars couldn't survive without George asked us to imagine a Harry Potter story only not written by J.K. Rowling. And I had a long, hard think about how much better that could potentially be than her last three magical world projects, The Cursed Child and the Fantastic Beast series. These universes universes are all, and I think I said this on our first ever shows 10 years ago, covering the Star Wars prequels, they are all bigger than any individual creator not only can star wars and indiana jones for that matter survive without george lucas it can flourish i think that somebody believes the good luck rock from this village is one of the lost shankara stones 
We sound kawa. Fortune and glory, kid. Fortune and glory. Is it worth mentioning that J.K. Rowling didn't actually write Cursed Child? She put the treatment together for okay. it. I'm just imagining a Fantastic Beasts movie which Joe had no involvement in at all. Yeah. If she did the treatment, then it's the same as Lucas doing the treatment for Temple. Anything goes. We begin with this Busby Berkeley kind of Cole Porter number, uh, Anything Goes, sung by Kate Capshaw, who at the time like wasn't anything to Spielberg. For some reason, when I was younger, I thought he had married her that year and then because of nepotism um, ended up in the film and so all of the irritations that Willie caused me it was like ah, if she hadn't been his wife he'd probably have hired someone else but it was the other way around she was just so charming and uh, uh, they they enjoyed each other's company so much that they ended up with a really long lasting marriage Mm. as a result of meeting on this particular film set and then getting back in touch many years later. Absolutely. And apparently he was also, um, he had a lot of admiration for her for putting up with the shit that she had to go through in the filming of this. Yeah. Now, it would be really easy to uh, point at Kate Capshaw and say, she's the problem with this whole film. There are many, many problems. But Capshaw herself got it in the neck from critics at the time for uh, being, in her own words, uh, not a very feminist type um, uh, heroine. And I completely agree. Yeah, watching her after having Marion as our heroine and actually, like, the way I put it on, on Twitter was there is a world of difference between watching Raiders and then watching Temple and analyzing Raiders and then analyzing Temple. You can sit down and enjoy Temple, but if you're asked to actually look at the component parts and you've just looked really long and hard and and, and, and analyzed the granular structure and every single brilliantly working piece of Raiders and then you look at this, it's a complete fucking mess. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I think that with the character of Willie, Lucas basically painted himself into a corner by doing it as a prequel and this was an element of that painting himself into a corner that he didn't even realize he was going to have to deal with so obviously there has to be a heroine Mm -hmm. obviously she has to be romantically entangled with Indy Mm -hmm. but we as the audience understand going in they are not going to be together by the end of this film or at the very least if they are it's not a relationship that's going to last long and also we have to like her less than we do Marion because otherwise if they'd done a heroine who was more likable and engaging than Marion then people would have felt a little bit cheated by the fact that we know Indy is going to end up with Marion I think you're right in terms of they were uh, that George was thinking right so we've already done this strong uh, you know, tough, resourceful, funny. Um, she's funny in her own way, but uh, what all of those things we said about Marion last time. So let's make the polar opposite: <laughs> a woman who doesn't want to be there. Exactly, which means that you end up with exactly what I said about poor Carlotta in Phantom of the Opera. Yeah. She is set up to be disliked by the audience. That is a really, really hard position to be in. Mm. And honestly, I think what Cape Capshaw managed to do with the paucity of character she was given 
is pretty impressive. That opening number is amazing. Like, removed from the rest of the film, Mm -hmm. her performance is splendid. Yeah. And she could barely move in that dress. And she sings in Mandarin, which is better than most of us can. Absolutely. The the opening of that film, um, you know, I... uh, I, I can. I'll, I'll let the elephant in the room out that even though watching it this time and every time I've watched it every year as I grow older, I like this movie less and less because I've become someone that's able to analyze it and knows that Raiders and Last Crusade are gods so, so much better. Mm-hmm. I saw this film when I was really young. It was made the year I came out, and I probably saw it in 86 or 87, right? Which, again, you mm-hmm. can justify whether that was a good decision on my parents part but this was referenced all over the place all these movies were referenced in muppet babies you know all all the stuff i was watching and so this was my first idea of what indiana jones was and as a kid all i remembered from the film was the action and the chase sequences and you know all the stuff that you know george lucas just loves about the character and so a lot of the downsides of the movie didn't really stick with me so when i saw raiders for the first time that movie was the shift for me like why is this different why is this more serious why is you know this that so that's kind of why i've always held a place for this one because it was my first connection with indy but to speak about um willie in particular if you look at just this opening sequence and kind of the back and forth between her and indy and what he says even though it's like a hyper realized kind of like fantasy james bond or um oh casablanca yeah, it reminds me a lot of like the look, you know, yeah, like a Casablanca he's dressed type nightclub like and all Rick that. in Casablanca when he turns I, up. I, it's great when Spielberg tries to do stuff like that. Like it's like this is what I love. Let me throw that in a movie, but mm. it's stuck within the George Lucas Indiana Jones fantasy that he's trying to put on screen. Mm. But Willie, even though her outward performance and what she says is very damsel in distress and oh help me, help me, I'm useless. She lets out a few lines of dialogue that it's like, no, she's playing a game here, too. She's hustling, too, here. Like, her whole thing is, no, I had a good thing going there in that club. I was able to do this and make a lot of money. And so she she lets some lines out that she doesn't want to be here because he took her away from her livelihood. Mm. But then the rest of the movie is just her being so whiny and useless as an outward performance. It parallels the same, which I'm sure we'll get into, with how... Harrison Ford has a lot of unspoken things that are very Spielberg indie in this movie, mm-hmm. but whenever he has to talk, he either seems completely disinterested or he's being dark and nasty. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just, it's so different. It's, it's the dialogue really. That's just hard to take in a lot of this movie. I miss Lawrence Kasdan so much. Yeah. 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 And it's not, it's not like he's infallible. Kasdan went on to direct Dreamcatcher, one of the worst <laughs> films I've ever seen. <laughs> no! Yeah. Clearly that's not where his talents lie then. Also, like, he and his son wrote Solo, one of the least engaging Star Wars scripts, so it's not a 100% infallible mm. scenario. But he, he looked at the original treatment. Did, did you say he said it was mean-spirited? Um, yeah, he said it was, uh, it was unpleasant and mean-spirited and he didn't want to mm. have anything to do with it. Yeah. So. So they went dark in this, and it, there is a there is a weird tone problem with this. Uh, even though it's a prequel, and even though this was the first one you saw, I would not suggest this be the first Indiana Jones film you showed to a kid, or indeed no. to an adult just coming to the series. Like this, this might you could even do this one last, like after Crystal Skull, because at least then you'd be like, oh, he's young again. <laughs> 
It's interesting for how many people this is likely to be the first indie, though. Mm. This was the first one I saw. I didn't see Raiders for a long time. It seems more kid-friendly for a bit. Yeah, Uh, I think because a lot of of people who are just too young for VCRs to really have been a massive thing, their first experience with this kind of stuff would have been on TV. So Mm. it would have been the TV edit. Yep. Yep. Mm. I didn't know a heart got ripped out of a chest until I was a lot older. Me there you either. go, then. Yeah. No, neither did I. We'll talk about what happened regarding various theatrical cuts on this one uh, in a bit, once we get to the actual titular Temple of Doom. But, uh, yeah, no, the, the, there's mm, a... Tit, tit for temp, as it were. <laughs> there's, a, there's a weird darkness to this. And, obviously, Short Round is put in there because uh, George decided, you know, kids can't relate to Indiana Jones. He's a grown-up. They want, we need to have a little kid in there, which is what got us young Anakin Skywalker because, obviously, Han Solo was just, not, you know, and Luke Skywalker just weren't possible for kids to relate to. It's almost like Short Round is Robin to Indiana Jones' Batman. And they only yeah. really revisit that with Mutt in uh, Crystal Skull. But Mutt is continuously shown to be not out of his depth, so it's not the same thing. You're, even though you start with Indy, you're technically, as a kid, watching it, you're short round, uh, out for a great fun weekend with Indiana Jones. Now, there was one sequence at the beginning, because like first off, we meet these sly Chinamen... Uh, triad villains who are like sort of ah, oh, we would never do anything to upset the brocade like just all of the shit that's in the Phantom Menace is right here uh, uh-huh. I am so sorry to just pull that fucking grotesque parody out of thin air but like George Lucas was always capable of looking at a a, a cultural portrayal like that and going this is fine and never going, I have really overstepped the mark here. Because <laughs> it's all over the films where he doesn't have people telling him no. Yeah, he, it's... Uh, and again, it, it it's one of those great gut punches as I get older of you, when you go back and watch this stuff and mm. you're just like, I wish my buddy Steve could have just been like, George, no. Mm. George, no. Oh. <laughs> just, just, just maybe pull back on that a little bit. Because with Short Round, you know, again... I like I like the actor playing him. This is this is the kid from Goonies, right? Mm. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and, and again, his role in both is kind of similar. I'm I'm the loud Asian kid, you know, is is what it comes off. But he has a lot more to do in Goonies. You know, he's he's in this. It's again the scenes where he's not speaking that you see Spielberg try to reach through. We talked about in Jaws and we talk about in E.T., there's scenes of the children mimicking the adults. Mm. There's a couple of great ones with Short Round and Indy yeah. in this that yeah. are are quiet. There's no, you know, Indy demeaning him and calling him, you know, a little pain in the butt. And none of Short Round screaming what he needs to do next at him because we need the kid to be the exposition character at this point. Because and, we've got Willie there sluicing off all the bad vibes. So, like, yeah. she's the pain in the ass and they can both agree on that. Again, this is, yeah. this is a boy's view of a moaning woman. God, I wish I was hitting the wards with those young bucks. But I'm old, tired, spent, busted, rusted, stuck in a mouldy old office with just a moody woman for company. At least that bulb's gone again. You couldn't fish another one out from the drawer, could you? Women, huh, kid? Yeah, right. I'm they both call her like- doll <laughs> in a very imitatable way. Like, yeah, this is how you talk to a dame who won't shut her yap. And it's like, oh, for fuck's sake. 
because everybody knows George Lucas knows how to mm. talk to women. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I tore my costume and I broke a nail. Yeah, ladies are always going on about that. Uh, uh, during the production diary stuff, uh, I don't know if it was Steve or George who said, well, this was in Gunga Din, a 1939 <laughs> film that's heavily colonial. And it's like, that doesn't make it fine. You like you're dredging out of the deep past decades, decades old stuff that was racist as fuck way back when. It's still racist as fuck in the eighties. It's quadruple racist as fuck right now. It's just there's there's some things that you can't just point at and go, well they did that then, like fifty years ago, so it should be fine now. No, no, it's not. All I can picture is Kermit the Frog with a George Lucas beard. True. When when you do your George. No, I love it. It's making me, I'm dying over here. And we're going to lose him soon. And I'm going to feel terrible about that. We started this podcast. I started this podcast ripping into him in 2010. And I became part of the climate of Star Wars is fucked because of XYZ. It was Lucas. Now it has become Disney. And then whatever right. the hell happens, you know, down the road, if 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 dis like if under whatever the hell happens, if Disney go under and Star Wars is bought by Viacom and we get the Viacom <laughs> or Verizon Wireless Star Wars films or the the Mountain Dew and, and Doritos Star Wars films, it will like, mobile Star Wars films. It will be as soon as Code Red got a hold of Star Wars, they ruined it. It was doing fine until then. <laughs> Um, Signed, I, no, Cheeto I, I was, Fingers 69. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, no. You, you mentioned this at the beginning. You know, I, I, we talked about this before we recorded. I look at George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And again, we all joined in on that vitriol, right? I don't think there's a person doing content on the internet now yeah. that has been a movie fan since 1996 yeah. that hasn't spent a lot of their time beating the crap out of George Lucas and, you know, and, and for some things, Steven Spielberg, right. But I look at a movie like this is these guys have bared their hearts through their movies Ooh, to us. Probably not a good idea well, to bear your heart during Temple of Doom of all films. Yes, yes, yes. Andy, Andy, protect, protect your heart. <laughs> um, but I look at this as, you know, kind of taking a friend to task. I, these people welcomed us into their world and gave us this stuff. So when you come off the bat with something like Raiders, mm-hmm. and then the second time through you end up to screen with something like this, you have to be able to ask questions of what went wrong? Why Why so dark? So it's kind of a why, roast. Why so racist oh, and nasty? Again, appropriate for Temple of Doom that it's a roast. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> the diamond deal goes down in Club Obi-Wan with the whole looking like Casablanca thing. And the actual setup is pretty good. Yeah. I think the problem is that Willie sums up her entire character in that scene and then doesn't go one footstep beyond that really, throughout the film. Um, I'm going to jump forwards a bit, and then we'll come back. There is a moment in the jungle when uh, she's running around and and getting spooked by all the wildlife that Indy starts, like, calms her down and talks about what they're looking for, the Shankara stones, and um, 
he, he talks about magic rocks and she goes magic rocks and she runs full pelt through one line one paragraph about her grandfather who spent his entire life as a magician with a rabbit in his hat and pigeons up his sleeve and she does it in a very dismissive way and it's like no 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 no, no, no. hold on back up back up back up because then you can get to the heart of what makes Willie so dismissive of magic and you can get to the heart of maybe why she doesn't trust men or, or you know the, the guys who, who, who claim to you know, just something can be done there because just just how you know that there were shades and reflections in Marion that you could look back on and her relationship with this unseen character of Abner Ravenwood Ravenwood yeah and just there was depth there before and they seem to be going out of their way to make her as shallow as they can possibly get and it's such a shame because something could be done with like the idea of expectations of shallowness and then defying those expectations it is a, it is a great little speech and I I actually think that in spite of how she was obviously encouraged to deliver it... Faster and more intense. ...minimise <laughs> the impact of it, I actually think it does get across um, a, an element of her that up till that point we've been convinced to ignore. And I think it does tie in with her um, uh, kind of almost grasping attempts to get hold of the diamond near mm. the beginning. Basically, who Willie is, is someone who needs to see the concrete paycheck before she can commit to anything. Hmm. And that's and the, the story of the grandfather is the why. The diamond chasing is the what. The grandfather's story is the why. But it, it isn't, you're absolutely right, that neither of them are given the space to breathe, the room to actually connect them together. Hmm. Um, but I do think that if you're if you're looking for it, and you are willing to give Kate Capshaw the benefit of the doubt, it does come across a tiny, tiny bit, but it needed so much more. Mm. The other bit I was going to mention is the the Indies man, the guy who backs him up with a revolver and then gets shot for it and dies in Indies' arms and says, you know what? Uh, Indy! Don't worry, I'm going to get you out of here. Not this time, Indy. I followed you on many adventures into the great unknown mystery. I go first, Indy. Don't be sad, Dr. Jones. You will soon be joining. That's that's a thing. That is a thing that Indy can live with for like if you look like go back to the Robin analogy, that's Jason Todd. That's the, yep. the the Robin who got killed. And he jumps out the window, falls into Short Round's car, and never mentions him or thinks about him for the rest of the movie. Like, you'd imagine that one Robin was in the same room as the other Robin when Indy was like, Okay, gentlemen, we're going to get this Nurhachi traded for the diamond. Wuhan, I got you this waiter disguise. You keep me covered in case Lao Shea tries anything. Shorty, you're our backup driver if things get hot. I may have to leave pretty fast. I don't know, I'm making it up as I go. Something along those lines. Like, you'd think Shorty might have something to say about Wuhan, the older, like, the Nightwing type, who's now fucking dead. And um, just nope. the fact that he got this guy killed on in Indy's part, and there was nothing he could do about it, and he doesn't... Like, you saw how wrecked he was when Marion got killed. It's so... Why nothing? That, that scene... 
after the whole song and dance number is finished is one of the ones I like the least because of how quickly it slaloms from uh, Wuhan being killed and you have like a half a heartbeat of oh, tragedy. Oh God! And then it slaloms into a guy getting shish comedy. <laughs> and I'm like, he's not even cold yet, guys. Yeah. Come on. Also, you did the shish kebab gag in the basket game, and it was better there, even though it was still slightly racist. There is that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and we don't need to necessarily talk about each individual bit. I will say every single action sequence, every single dramatic sequence, if you look at a parallel in Raiders and um, Last Crusade, it's weaker on every level. Like, there's, there's nothing in this film that thrills me and engages me like those other two. I didn't want to spend the whole time bitching about it, but I can't talk about how great the minecart sequence is because it feels fake as fuck. I can't talk about how great the bit when they're falling out of the plane in the boat feels because it, it actually straight up bre- breaches physics in a way that, in retrospect, reminds me of the fridge sequence in Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. But no one ever talks about the dinghy. Go back in time to 1984. Why was this fine? Watch him do the exact same thing in a plastic dinghy. Yeah. No, no, we're talking dead, crushed people toppling to their deaths at least twice during that sequence. There's just a a small point about while they're in the plane, by the way, on the theme of let's set Willie up to be uh, the exact antithesis of Marion. Mm -hmm. The scene where Indy doesn't want to talk to her and so pulls the hat down over his eyes is the direct opposite Opposite. to Marion flinging it off his head on the ship. He goes to sleep there because he's finally... Like relaxed in this almost maternal uh, embrace with uh, with Marion, but here he's like, I am going to go inside myself and ignore you because I hate you. Bye, and just putting the hat over his face. It, it is cool though to call back to those those cues and things where, yeah, the, you're right about the action sequences, um, but there's there's a funness or fun is a bad word because the movie isn't fun it's kind of gross but um liveliness there's a scope scope to a lot of the sets Hmm. but i wish the action scenes they did in them were more interesting yeah because they obviously spent a lot of time um but it's those reminders like it's like george got all the all the noise and spielberg got to craft the look of the film Mm. and even though those two things are fighting against each other and diminishing the overall product having like a hat you know antithesis like that the the short round mimicking stuff the visual look of a lot of the scenes if there wasn't just so much grossness going on in them Mm. would be would be wonderful to watch when they get to the village there are actually oh some strengths here. It, it's there are some strengths and some weaknesses as it comes across. First off, there's like a, a matte painting of the village the first time around that you see it, and it's actually very skillfully done because when they get to it at the end, everything's lush and green, and you realise why it was a matte painting in the first place, so that they could actually kind of give you the illusion that everything's gone into decay, and it does the make everything seem, of the shire. yeah, it makes everything seem a bit more magical, like uh, like that bit in Secret of Manor where you go away from this poor bleached um, desert town, and then when you come back to it water has returned to it and everyone's happy and it plays different music that goes and just the idea that they've now slain the dragon and peace has been restored I, I like that as an element to achieve that they give you these sort of gaunt eyed people who feel 
like they've had a lot of a lot of something important taken away from them and so you feel kind of more sense of this is really bad it, on a way that Raiders never quite hits because you don't get like directly pointed towards abject living suffering in the same way you, you Indy is given a quest to right this wrong which is technically kind of a step sideways from Raiders in that it gives him like something to do which will help people but rather th- than just in the abstract I think part of the reason for that is that in Raiders and to a lesser extent in Last Crusade the abject suffering that the villains of the piece are profiting yeah. off is the Holocaust yeah because it's real and in this context, in this context of this fun adventure, mm. you can't show that, yeah. but you can hint at what's going on off screen and how Indy's small part in all of this might possibly contribute to, mm. to kind of bringing it all down. Whereas I think the the difficulty that they've got here, and again, honestly, George insisting on making this a prequel just so that you could get away with the, uh, away from the Nazis mm. was a really, really bad idea. Because? Because he, he takes it to a place that he knows clearly very little about. If his, The extent of his research was, I watched Gunga Din 20 years ago. <laughs> and it was 20 yeah. years old then. Exactly. And it, it but, it, you know, the... The, the setting is then. is very stereotypical. The uh, the the religious artifacts that they choose to pick on the the Kali cult. I know it's kind of all directed at this specific thuggy cult, rather than sort of saying, "Oh, Hindus, man, they're weird." Hmm. Um, but but the, oh, yeah. the the thuggy cult was real. It's just this is a heightened version. Indeed, of them. but the but you're setting up what is, to all intent and purposes, a highly highly fictionalized religion. But it carries just enough. Reference mm. to actual uh, enough kernels of truth to be misleading and worship to be misleading exactly. Yeah, yeah I get what you're saying there. Also, the um, the they went a bit too far by pushing all of these villagers into not really being relatable as people. They're all just like gaunt eyed. Oh, you know, like NPCs in a, uh, uh, a JRPG who, whenever you approach them, will only say one thing over mm. and over again, and it all kind of begins to blend into it, it itself. However, at the same time, that one guy, like the first guy that they meet, who who says, you know, that, you know, then like monsoon, it moves darkness. It's a really great performance. He's really into yeah. that character. He was effectively delivering lines that Spielberg was feeding him off camera and just repeating what was he was being told. But the way he gets it across gives a weight to what they then go on and do. Absolutely. And some of the smaller performances around as well. The, the little kid who comes in with the map fragment yeah. and then collapses in Indy's arms. That's really... That yeah. so oh. powerful. And for such a, a young kid, whether he you know was even old enough to grasp what it was he was being asked to convey, I don't know... But you know the scene in His Dark Materials when uh, they find... Tony Macarius. Uh, yeah, without Ratter. Mm. That's what this always... Or, Reminded or, me of. Yeah, this, it evoked that for me, of this, this collapsed child who has nothing left. Mm. On the way to Delhi, you will stop at Bangkok. Bangkok is not on the way to Delhi. You will go to Bangkok Palace. I thought the palace had been deserted since... Uh, no. Now there is a new Maharaja. 
and again the palace has the power of the dark light. It is that place. Kill my people. What has happened here? The evil start in Bangkok, then like monsoon, it moves darkness over all country, over all country. Yeah, there's there's some strengths in there as well, and then they kind of get, get back on the road to uh, uh, to go ride to Pankot, and then it. Like it's almost like forget all of that suffering because we've got Willie getting splashed by an elephant and thrown about the place and she's running around screaming and going, "Oh no, a bat, a lizard, a snake!" Oh. And <laughs> you get—I mean, really—the the, the tone you're being asked to accept is the mild irritation of Indy and uh, Short Round, who are just like honestly, it feels like they'd just be doing so much better on this without her. Mm-hmm. Which, like, if your audience don't want Willie to be there, you messed up in terms of her being a character. She's like, um. Jar Jar Binks, just a, yeah. a, a person that's just around annoying people and uh, d- doesn't really add anything. And I, I, I checked, and there's a point immediately after she pulls on the fulcrum to let them out of the trap room. After that, Willie does nothing of value in the entire movie. Yep, she's she just, just stands a passenger. There and reacts. She gets chained up. She almost gets killed. She almost gets her heart written out. She spits at Indy, but that doesn't uh, bring him back. She performs one punch later on that could easily have been performed by either of those two. Mm-hmm. And then she's just there witnessing it happen. There's very much a Bond girl sensibility about her, where it's just like she's the girl that that uh, all, older directors were like, yeah, but, you know, this lovely young filly would be there for, for Bond to have. And you know, the fillies in the audience will want to be her so that they can be there witnessing James and all of his magnificence. Mm. But the- By the way, <laughs> why why doesn't Molaran rip her heart out? I said why to Sarah, it- there's no reason for him not to, narratively mm. speaking. She gets the symbolic version, but as you say, it's it's for no apparent reason. Mm. But the the fact that she's introduced as a hostage... And the reaction that she has to that is entirely unconcerned about everything apart from getting holes in her dress because she's so intrigued by, oh, diamonds, let's ignore the fact that somebody's got a fork stuck in my back. Um, Then when when we get to the part where she is once again a hostage, she is again failing to react in any way. She's just standing there screaming for Indy to help. That would have been an ideal point to have her, even if she failed, at least attempt some kind of... Uh, if not a physical struggle, to to try and reason with Molaram or something like that, just something to take her situation in her own hands, even if it was just in a tiny, tiny way. Or Cynthia Arrivo in uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> if you've seen that one, folks, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. What a freaking oh. performance. <laughs> Um, the sacrificial statue, uh, like covered in blood, with seemingly children's fingers, like you know, oh yeah, offered to it. It's, yes. like, like, it's exemplifies the tone problems. You never actually get to see it up close, but the Kali statue in the temp- titular Temple of Doom is has a, wears like a grass skirt of human arms. It's so it's horrifying. Uh, uh, so again, like who is this for? Because if it's for 
like y- young boys who are fascinated by gore, it's not extreme enough. It's too tame. If it's for um, adults, then why is it so kiddy and so clearly aimed at kids? Even jo- um, uh, John Williams' score has this kind of very like. It's a very much more sort of bouncy, approachable score and less dangerous than uh, uh, Raiders. And it doesn't have any of the reflection of uh, Last Crusade. And no- nothing dramatic happens. So that- and there's very little in there for the ladies, unless you really like looking at Harrison Ford wearing ripped shirts, in which case, ladies. Um <clears throat> <laughs> But I mean, it's, he is shirtless for a sequence. He is, yeah. I mean, he's also in great shape. But he also threw his back out uh, doing uh, was it stunts or? Um... Uh, it's the scene in the bedroom when the guy uh, is has got the thing round his neck, yeah. and it, it's the one that ends with him getting him the whip round his neck and yeah. hanging him from the fan. But basically, there's a point in that scene where he throws this guy who's massive mm. over his shoulder. They didn't have a stunty do that. I, Brilliant. I don't know to and what th- extent. And this is what Maybe happens. Your main actors pull their backs. It's entirely possible that all Harrison Ford was supposed to do was, like, pull him up and then they would cut to the hmm. stunty. I don't know. But in the process of that, he herniated a disc. Well, there's many, many Jesus. times in, in the film when the voodoo doll gets employed, which, by the way, is nothing to do, as far as I can tell, with any kind of thuggy cult. So that's just throwing in extra things from various other cultures that are nothing to do well, with that. Know, just to confuse George is... George's great white hunter uncle or whatever that he used to help write this script just told him this is this is how the parts of the world you don't understand work yeah <laughs> here's my shrunken heads from Borneo anyway um but like anytime it gets to, like Indy gets stabbed in the back hypothetically over and over again and keeps going and like flinging himself backwards and it's like all I can think about is how he herniated at that point and how he must be in agony. And I'm just wondering, is that real? Did he actually throw his back out the way that Vigo Mortensen broke his toe and they just kept the camera rolling? <laughs> it just, it felt, oh. well, for a start, not worth it. And no, it I, th- I think he did have to have a couple of days off to rest it yeah. and then was okay to carry on. But, but it's, like, especially following the Twilight Zone, there's no way Stephen would feel like this was worth, mm. you know, endangering hurting his, his actors to, to get any kind of film out of but um, again these are just regrettable things that are, uh, that occurred but um, back, back back to the score real quick mm-hmm. even though um, even though obviously th- there's nothing you know as um, dramatic as either of the other two films that main theme that is extremely iconic oh yeah but but the movie seems to use it like it, they seem to kick it up whenever they're like, see, care about what's happening here, which is never the way I like to see a John Williams score be used. It's usually adding an exclamation point to something that's already awesome. Yeah. And usually that's like, hey, look at this tracking shot of stuff. <laughs> and then hmm. that kicks up and I'm like, oh, they've gone from this place to this place. We have now moved yeah. to another place. Um, and now they're at Pancot, which we're, we're ready for the movie to just get silly, everybody. Yeah, it, it, it does. And uh, one of the things I realized um, when I watched it the first time around this cycle was we don't rotate back to the world. We don't go to real life. And like, because 
that Indiana Jones is almost a superhero in that when he's got the leather jacket and the hat and the whip on, that's his costume and that's what he plays at being. We literally see his inspiration later on in Last Crusade. He's dressing as that guy. He is cosplaying as a guy he thought was awesome. Uh, His name was Fedora. Um, And... When he is back in the real world, he's wearing the sort of tweed jacket and the, the you know the patches and the glasses, and he's Professor Henry Jones, uh, the teachers at this college. And we don't get to rotate back to the real world. The closest we get is here at Pankot when he's making nice and and chatting with Chatala uh, about the you know the the British occupation of India, which is glossed over really quickly, easily, and neatly. <sighs> But it's like, this is the most civilised bit, and it's fucking undercut by the snake surprise! Oh, so bad. This whole sequence. This even has Willy thinking that she's going to be able to seduce the young Maharaja Mm. before she realises he's like 13. Yeah. And that's hilarious. And creepy. But also hilarious. But also creepy. This isn't funny at all. No. Um, I do think the the guy playing the Maharaja's Prime Minister... Chetala. Yeah. He's great. Mm. That line yes. about the British worry about their empire so it makes us feel all like well-cared-for children. Oh, my God, the sarcasm in that. You could cut bread with it. Yeah. Frankly, he should have been a real character because we yeah. never really got to find out what he was about. Absolutely. He turns up very briefly as somebody else in the cult. Who is, yeah, and all yeah. the cult members are the same person, basically. Yeah. They're just like, ha, 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 I'm in a cult. I'm not even going to talk. Ha, ha, ha. And, Another and, member of the Foot Clan to dispatch. Oh Here you God. are. They're totally the Foot Clan. Except you felt sorry for the Foot Clan because you knew that they were kids off the street. Whereas, yeah. I, you do feel sorry for... Maybe the Maharaja? Especially when Shorty has like got him on the ground like an MMA fighter and is beating the fuck out of his face. You've yeah. already seen you just need to burn him, Shorty. What are you doing? Mm-hmm. Yep. No, there can only be one semi-Asian stereotype in this film, and it's me. Oh, God. <laughs> okay, so yeah, uh, the uh, the actor is uh, uh, Roshan Seth as Chatala, um, who uh, was in My Beautiful Laundrette and Street oh, Fighter the Movie Fight as Dalsim. Movie. Be, I was about to say I, I know him from My Beautiful Laundrette, but no, I know him from Street Fighter the Movie. That is shame. Oh, God, he was Dalsim? <laughs> yeah. I didn't even put two and two together. Oh, that poor kid typecast forever. He tries to... Uh, no, no, this is uh, this is uh, Chatala, the, uh, the sort of, the you know, the, the, the prime minister. The, uh, the, the oh, okay, either way, still. Yeah. But hey, you, he brings way you, too you much... You want to play gra- Indian stereotype? Yeah, he, he plays. He brings way too much gravity to the role of Dalsim in Street Fighter. It feels somewhat out of place. But, um, yeah, no, so we got the whole eating weird foods thing. Again, this is like for kids. Like it's it's, but also at the same time, it's for racists. It's people going, yeah, you know what? They eat bugs in in uh, in India and China and all them places. They eat snakes and monkey brains and giant vampire bats. It cannot have escaped any of your attention that certain sections, especially of America, have really hyper focused in on the bat soup angle of blaming China for the pandemic. 
the monkey brains is where I draw the line. It's like, okay, guys, this right here, like even even Rob Tapert, who uh, is is Sam Raimi's producer, mm-hmm. um, who he does all his stuff with, and Rob is the George Lucas of the two of them. If you watch, you know, this movie reminds me a lot of Army of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Like it reminds me a lot of, you know, I bet Sam Raimi would make a great Indiana Jones movie. Oh, like. <laughs> Right. Yeah. It, it, I can hear George like Rob in the background. Like there's a scene in um, Army of Darkness mm-hmm. and it's like one of the few times a PG-13 movie had nudity in it. Um, there's a scene where the skeletons are bringing like the uh, the captured women around. And for some reason, the women are all topless. And on the director's um, commentary, you hear Sam just taking Rob to task being like, Sam, you know, in the scene, this would be great if, you know, they didn't have their shirts on. And Sam is like, Rob, no. And then, like, Rob ended up being, like, the guy on set who, like, was like, no, no, let's do it like this. It'll be great. And it's just like, oh, not getting the tone of your movie at all. Like, it was, there's nothing else that fits in like that. It's just a guy being gross for no reason. Yeah, it's kind of like John Milius in the uh, commentary for uh, uh, Conan the Barbarian, which is, that that's oh. worth a listen if you can ever sit down and listen Jesus. to him and Arnold Schwarzenegger being two dirty old men for two hours. All of a sudden is has to listen to the women problems. Even then, in this prehistoric times, women were already in the jewelry, huh? Yeah, terrible waste to throw her over, huh? I would say. I get laid a lot in this movie, don't I, John? <laughs> it's such a terrible waste of young flesh. Ah, just your skin will crawl right off its body. <laughs> oh, they're so gross. Yeah. They're so gross. <laughs> Uh, oh, slight correction, uh, Army of Darkness. I'd always thought it was a PG-13 as well. I was like, hang on, the last time I checked, it is in fact an R. I don't know oh, how or why, because everything about it screams PG-13. All of the gore and violence and, and, and like, all, like, this can't be the same rating as the original Evil Dead. That doesn't make any sense. It must have been that they were shooting for a PG-13 and then didn't get it, probably because mm. of Rob's breasts. I mean, just cut, just remove the bits with the boobs. But even but like, Rob needed you could, it. You could get boobs into a PG. No, Context. you could. You couldn't. You couldn't after the PG thirteen. I was going to say, would it be? I mean, like Kramer versus Kramer has boobs. Well, so does the Fifth Element. Ah, it doesn't matter. I find. We, we could. Hey, that, that's how here. you have. You, that's how you know you have two guys in your podcast. Oh, let's not go. What was the one with go. the boobs in it? Ah, sorry. Let's <laughs> let's not conform to stereotypes. What PG-rated films can I show to my nine-year-old God, so we can see some So watching Braveheart, and it gets to that scene where Sophie Marceau's like, we all know the scene. Yeah, you know, she's, she's bathing in that waterfall and whatnot, and it's me, my buddy, and his dad. In a dark living room. Just some gentle music. Sure. And she's showering under a waterfall and whatever. I want to marry you. <laughs> <laughs> and then cutting through this beautiful moment is just this dude's dad just goes, well, there's her boobers. <laughs> and boobers. I, boobers, dude. And I have never had a moment shattered so fast into so many pieces than the gr- a grown man using the word boober all credit to andrew jupin of we hate movies there who now probably has all nudity in cinema mentally relate to that moment of his teenage years we are trying to empathize with the ladies who felt objectified here we are I'm not sat here like Catherine heigl and knocked up boobs boobs, boobs. <laughs> that's exactly what Credit i was thinking <laughs> 
Cuts it red. Without oh my god, I am, so, I am so sorry for this being my fault. <laughs> well, it's better to be Kevin Heigl in Knocked Up than Kevin Heigl in My Father the Hero. Uh, Vintage no. minor. <clears throat> anyway. Harvey Keitel, weirdest dude. The piano. That wasn't Harvey Keitel. That was Gerard Depardieu. Moving oh God. very swiftly on. Uh, so, okay, the chilled monkey's brains thing. The fact that they're served inside monkey's skulls. It's like, uh, could we put these in bowls? No, put them in a skull. Absolutely can't. I actually, I had a thought when we were watching it. Maybe this is like, they've set this all up for the tourists and yeah. the, the monkey brains actually are custard, custard and with raspberry, raspberry sauce. sauce. And the, the bugs are like, they've taken crab meat and put them in like these scarab shells just as like a decorative thing. Yeah. But it was custard again. The eels wriggling oh, all over the why place. Are kind they, of yeah, the why are there that. living eels inside the snake? Because okay, they but... cook the snake and then there's living snakes in it. Oh, <laughs> or... Those poor snakes. Lurch, were they in there before you, mate? <laughs> okay, uh, but th- th- when Willie asks, do you have anything simple like soup? And then she sort of stirs it around, and then all these eyeballs come to the top. It's like at Halloween, when you're, if, you, if you had really imaginative parents who would actually like try and play fun party games with you, like, right, blindfolded, put your hands in these eyeballs. It, it, it verges on that, which is why I feel like this bit is definitely for kids. But it also... Just plants a seed in people's heads. Don't go abroad. They eat cockroaches and monkeys' brains and nothing else. And that mentality leads you to, haven't you got any chips? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's not. It's actually not entirely wrong. Like, if you go to, to a, a market in, in, in China, they eat scorpions on sticks. Like, they totally do eat weird things in different places. But they eat lots of things. They don't just eat weird things. And it would like this is just like a hefty concentration just to get gag after gag, literally, out of uh, this scenario. And then, sorry, I think I just like we've been freaking out here. Um, This is fun, and and even more disgusting than the food is how everyone eats it. Yeah, that guy with the two eels just lowering them into his mouth, just going, "Yeah, this is how I eat eels." I feel bad for the eels at that point. Yeah. Okay, so oh, those poor things. It's immediately followed by the nocturnal activities section, which I had to ask both Sharon and Lyra, like, did, is Indy a pig here? Like, how does this come off in comparison to the almost love scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark? So? It's, uh, well, as I said to you before, I actually don't find this section to be particularly ewy in terms of... Um, how Willie's being treated. Fundamentally, this is one of the parts of the film where she actually gets a little bit more in- more agency. Mm. She's yeah, she's engaging more than she does anywhere else. She's more in her own environment here. She's got silk pajamas and a curtained bed. This is this is more her space than anywhere else. I feel like George thought that this was going to be like Han and Leia in The Empire Strikes Back. Maybe so, but the, it wasn't. The, the the elements of it which do feel a little bit like he's being a pig and being very dominant are directly addressed so when he pulls off the whole uh okay i'll what was it i don't want to prejudice my experiments i'll tell you in the morning the very next breath she's throwing him out of the room Hmm. and then 
it's although she then kind of positions herself to wait for him it's very very clear that she is doing this on purpose you see her get agitated when it doesn't work and he doesn't come straight back mm. so honestly it it is very different from the love scene in raiders but i actually find both of them quite appealing in their own ways they they're both pretty good showcases for the female characters that you have in those roles and um it it's if any if if anything i actually feel like it feels very out of character for the indie that we already know yeah yeah that's why yeah. th- honestly i would have been absolutely fine and i would actually really have liked the scene if she if like it happens it starts the exact same way uh, that it does wherein she's like you know what do you want there's nothing you could give me that's of any interest and then he turns around and goes oh, i guess you don't want this then and then crunches into an apple and then she goes <gasps> and then goes to get the fruit that's a lovely little i found food mm. that you can actually eat and she's like oh you're a very nice man and like that is nice and if they just, he just sat down and they just had a talk about something I think the other reason that it falls down a little bit is that what they seem to have been going for is this is a younger indie mm. before he's had his corners knocked off before he's kind of learned that this it's is like not... a year before raiders exactly and and also this is not a uh, a younger more impulsive indie this is an older slightly sleazier more overconfident indie so it it like I said, it's not just that it seems out of character with the raider, with the indie that we know in Raiders. It's that it's it's out of sequence with where what direction he's travelling in. It's almost like they forget that it's this is meant to happen beforehand. Hmm. Uh, this takes place, by the way, folks, uh, in 1935, and Raiders takes place in 1936. Yeah. So it is a year before. Honestly, if it was that this was after Raiders and this was him being deliberately uh, cynical and brittle and guarded because he was he lost Marion, I could understand that. Maybe that would make if they'd a lot more done sense. Done something with the me. characters, yeah. and, and if he was like, "I got to get out of Europe. There's too many Nazis there." Whoa, you okay there, Chris? Yes. Sorry. What did you hear? <laughs> Lots of ice. <laughs> Lots of Sounded ice. Sounded very refreshing. Being dropped. <laughs> I'm not sure that came from here. Oh, jeez. Huh. Weird. Okay. okay. Uh, I've got something for you. Oh, yeah. He means his cock. <laughs> There's nothing you have that I could possibly want. Right. Oh. Oh, you're a very nice man. Maybe you could be my palace slave. Wear your jewels to bed, princess? Yeah. And nothing else. It shock you? Nothing shocks me. I'm a scientist. So as a scientist, you do a lot of research? Always. And what sort of research would you do on me? Nocturnal activities. You mean like what sort of cream I put on my face at night? What position I like to sleep in? Mating customs. Love rituals? Primitive sexual practices. 
So you're an authority in that area? Years of field work. I don't want to prejudice my experiment. I'll let you know in the morning. Why, you conceited ape. I'm not that easy. I'm not that easy either. Trouble with you is Willie. Too used to getting your own way. And you're just too proud to admit that you're crazy about me, Dr. Jones. If you want me, Willie, you know where you can find me. Five minutes. You'll be back over here in five minutes. I'll be asleep in five minutes. Five. You know it, and I know it. If if this was an actual sequel to Raiders and had taken place afterwards, mm. and he was feeling uh, sort of overprotective of himself and being deliberately cool with Willie. Mm. Uh, as a defence mechanism, that would kind of make sense. It also puts it above all the other James Bond films they're emulating by acknowledging that a relationship has happened yep. in this guy's life rather Indeed. than just moving on to the next filly. Yeah. Right, it never it never comes off as being overly predatory in any of the three films. It comes off as, in this one, being a little bit more like, you know, just kind of showing off a little bit mm. than anything else. I just wish he hadn't called a doll so much yeah no that's yeah <laughs> he's not outwardly nasty to her and shitty with her but he's very dismissive the whole way through and she obviously is painted in a way that would make people go well i can see why you'd be dismissive to her she's ghastly but again like kate capshaw is actually funny at times and she's you know pretty good at delivering lines sometimes mm. uh but uh, the, uh, the the freaking out over bugs and the snake and things those were actually real and there was a lot of like you know she had to make deals with Steve regarding what she would and wouldn't do in scenes which had a big snake in it because she actually was genuinely afraid of the thing. And, uh, you know, he was like, right, so you don't have to do the snake, but you've got to do the bugs or vice versa. I can't remember which one it yeah, was. Yeah, no, no, no. It was like she was telling him she really, really couldn't do the snake and he said, okay, that's fine, but you have to do the bugs soon. Yeah. So she said, okay, I'll do And it's like if you sign up for an Indiana Jones film and then go, but they were putting creepy crawlies all over me. It's like, what did you expect was going to happen? I'm assuming you saw Raiders, right? It, it seems like whatever if whoever the girl is in an Indiana Jones film is going to have um, something horrible put in her hair. Yeah, and I got to say, snakes don't bug me, rats don't bother me, mm-hmm. and bugs on their own don't bother me. I have never, ever had a more like gut reaction. In, and it has to be because I was so young when I saw this, but the bug sequence in this mm-hmm. makes my skin crawl. I have a hard time watching it still. So then there's the, the the lowering ceiling trap thing. And I think I'd seen that done enough times in other things for me to go, oh, it's one of those. As opposed to, uh, uh, you know, this is... Because, uh, you know, we've, we've seen traps before. This, I mean, was this the first time you'd ever seen something like this, Chris? Oh, yeah. And it it's always, um, it's always amazed me even though, you know, once you see the others, this one pales in comparison, as mm-hmm. you do say, how close they let them get to actually dying mm-hmm. here. Because 
it's not just a squishing ceiling. It's a squishing ceiling with spikes. And mm-hmm. you know George wanted this in here as a callback to the trash compactor. You know that's why they did it, mm-hmm. right? It it just – but there's something about, like, the, the um, spike piercing the hat. Yeah, I was like just going to say, that's hat. the thing that sells it at the end where it's like, oh, they really yeah. are stuck now. It goes yeah. like it goes through his hat band, doesn't it? It's so cool. Like it goes between it goes, the the felt and the band. I don't know if it goes through the actual band, but mm. it certainly goes right down the side and presses the brim against his face. Yeah, it feels and, very physical. And Harrison, you know, his his vocal performance in this movie is very dismissive. Like he obviously doesn't seem to be into what they have him saying. Yeah, but his physical performance is still top notch, and the look that. There is no look that anyone else can do that is the look of Harrison Ford as Indy in the I'm fucked look that yeah. he gives to stuff. And he's looking at that spike like, I'm going to die right now. <laughs> like, there's no, like, that's it. <laughs> and he really sells it. I mean, just talking about traumatizing children, we are now at the titular Temple of Doom. And this is where the BBFC, who were the British Board of, at the time, Film Censorship, I believe, uh, who got rechristened as the British Board of Film Classification, they took exception to several bits in this film. And they all seem to start here. Uh, this is where um, uh, a lady named Carol Topolsky, who uh, worked for, with the BBFC from 82 to 94, uh, was you know watching it. And then she was fine. It was like, yeah, creepy crawlies, threatening spikes, crushing ceilings, legitimate entertainment for a young audience. That gets it a PG. This is prior to the 12 certificate in the UK by several years. We didn't get that till 1989's Batman. Then... When we get to the heart-ripping scene, she decided that this was just too much. It's a uh, The violence got stronger and sadistic pleasure crept in. A boy's heart is ripped out. She's describing him as a boy. I always saw this guy as a young man, even as a kid. I never thought that's a boy. But, you know, I completely understand why some people would watch that and think that is a boy. And then he is plunged live and screaming into molten fire and is seen to perish. And there are many, many lingering shots here. I don't remember us ever passing a scene like this in PG before. In Raiders of the Lost Ark, those Nazis die at the end, their faces melt off, One, Dietrich's head implodes, no more driving for him, Belloc's head explodes. That is fucking fantastic, they're Nazis, I could completely get why the BBFC would go, this no is problem there, <laughs> like these guys are evil as hell. This is just some young guy we meet who is horribly tortured to death before our eyes. I completely understand. They they basically took this in a serious meeting to Spielberg and said, you need to make some cuts. It wasn't just this bit. There were uh, other bits later on. The, <clears throat> the uh, heart pulsating in his hand, the lengthy lower down into the pit as he catches fire and the model burns... The uh, the double flogging of Indy and Shorty, which they just oh, said yeah. went on way too long. And as I said to Sharon, you get no relief there for if you're a, ki- a young kid watching it. Indy then drink- is force fed the blood of Carly, and rather than like just you know moving on to something where it's like and it's okay because this, we then get a really unsettling scene where Indy is just Aah! and like in this horrible. Um, you know, like agonizing pain, in, in a, and so like he's on his own in this room. It's a haunting scene. It's very effectively done, but not for children, mm. and not following the 
the bl- forced blood drinking scene because then when like he his face looms into the light and then he he's got this haunted look on it and then Harris uh, you, uh, what you said about his physical performance you're absolutely right it's almost too good because there is like ah, yeah ah. what we've missed is that this is some kind of narcotic and that he's been fed a whole bunch of like programming cult bullshit about how uh, you know this Carly death cult is the only way forwards and um, you know or maybe it's magic it kind of doesn't matter because we don't really get that programming scene it feels really unsettling well, i think that's what the chanting is it it's it ultimately it takes less of a hold with him because unlike the rest of the cult he's not been subject mm. to this over a long period of time but the the drugging and the hypnotic effect of the chanting would be enough to at the very least disorient him and make him suggestible mm. um, but I, th- I think what you're saying about the the sustained threat at this particular juncture because it's shorty because it's the it's the child character that kids watching this film will have been identifying being with whipped thus far it, it's the fact that he is being whipped and then the potential source of his protection and rescue is immediately shown to be not in a position to protect him right yeah, now. Yeah, Indy can't protect him. And then this creepy little Maharaja kid comes along grinning away and then stabs the... No, actually he burns the Indiana Jones voodoo doll yeah. causing Indy horrible pain. So they are really trapped and caught here. If you're a little kid watching it, even if you've got parents there saying it's going to be okay, there's nothing in the film that tells you it's going to be, be okay. okay yeah. There's nothing. No. There's no relief. And it then goes there's from bad to worse to oh my god. And then they're about to kill Willie, and you like even as a kid, I would imagine you start feeling oh this is terrible. I don't want to see her burned up like that poor guy. I mean she's annoying, but geez. And Indy's the one doing it, and he's got this weird look on his face the whole time. Mm. Another thing the BBFC didn't particularly love was the fight Indy got into with Pat Roach. They uh, weren't happy with a couple of the more vicious moves in that one. They ended up cutting like a, a, a minute and five seconds from the film, which is a lot of footage. So like the actual the bodily heart rip like this, it's still implied, but the, the version people saw in cinemas in Britain did not have the actual shots of the heart rip. It had several shots from the actual sacrifice taken out, the double flogging taken out, a lot of stuff from the bridge at the end, weirdly enough, including Mola Ram's violent toppling, you know, fall to his death where he bangs his head off a rock. I, 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 by this point, like, surely you want him to have a, an explosive, violent death as a catharsis for the kids. But the BBFC were very, they were very skittish, and this was during the time of video nasties. And, uh, you know, like, they were at this point engaged in a legal dispute with the, with the uh, studio behind I Spit on Your Grave, who, like, stole an R. Um, was it was the MPAA ended up doing that, actually. No, sorry, uh-huh. that was the American version. Um, so it wasn't until 2012 that we got the complete uncut version on Blu-ray. So that means all the VHS versions that we uh, that I had, that I had the VHS version and taped it off the TV version, which would have been cut anyway for TV. TV. But that would have meant the DVD version as well that mm-hmm. I uh, had would have been uh, cut. So this, it, it's, I mean, you, you, know, you watch these scenes now, they're tame to an adult who has seen stuff like Evil Dead, but they're not came to a little kid and I think the juxtaposition of the slightly too kiddy tone of a lot of the shorty stuff and the real lingering 
sadism of the sacrificial elements to this and the black magic and that it you got no relief the bbfc were kind of weirded out but they knew that young boys would be kicking down the doors to see the the sequel to raiders of the lost ark so they had to get it a pg so rather than like forcing it to be a 15 which is the only available other certificate they could have had um it was just these cuts had to be made and i i can understand that but, I mean, the British public were very, and always have been, very skittish about what kids see. And they, they tend to sort of point fingers and go, see, it's these violent films that make violent kids do violent you things. Can... And I don't ever want to just go, <coughs> it's never that ever. But neither do I want to go, it's always that always. Clearly there was violence before movies. But we have had for many decades at our fingertips the most gruesome of entertainment. And now we have a serious empathy problem in the world, especially in young men. There are deeper cultural ramifications to all this. It's not something I can put a lid on with a convenient, media-friendly soundbite. But you can exactly. kind of understand why, particularly around this era, they would be very cagey about what they let go through. Hmm. Because there is a difference between something that is only going to be seen in a cinema or later cut to pieces with a pair of scissors mm. for TV, um, where you've got strict imposed age limits anyway. Mm-hmm. And worst case scenario, if somebody sees something that's a bit too intense for them, they're going to see it once, yeah. and then they go home and, and they can move on from it. When you're talking about the home video market, it's a different context. It's It did expand the possibility of kids being able to get hold of things that were really inappropriate for them yeah. and watch them over and over again. And a lot of it did come down to... Um, it, it's the the thing of parents not understanding the technology that was now available and and letting their kids watch stuff that they shouldn't watch. Mm. However, watching this twice in a row, I realised something after checking over my notes twice. I had loads of things to say up to the Temple of Doom and I was sort of like, you know, looking at this stuff and, and trying my best to deconstruct it. As soon as they get to the temple, it was just incident, 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 and I realized just now there's no dialogue, there's no drama, it's just Stuff a series happening. of set pieces My and things happening. Run out as well now. I, I challenge you folks find anything to say about the second half of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom apart from imagery, which is all you get like hellish Kali death cult imagery, and like some, like there are words, but it's mostly Mola Ram controlling proceedings and telling you that you know that this is going to be the death cult that takes over the whole world. And he has no line, there's nothing to him as a villain, he's just this sneering, crazy old priest, like something out of um, the various colonial uh, novels. He reminds me of Gagool in uh, King Solomon's Minds. Mm, yeah. like, oh. The- Yeah, that kind of so far removed, you can't even see the human being there type of person. There's a a IMDb trivia note, and I I hope to goodness this is accurate, but the thing that he's chanting, apparently, is... What, Kalima? uh, No, 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 not not the Kalima bit, but he has a a longer, more involved uh, speech that he's chanting. I think it's when he does the heart-ripping thing. Um, But it's the... It's in... The language he's speaking, which I'm guessing is probably Hindi. Or Urdu. 
um, is the translation of something along the lines of kill the pig, flay his skin, bash him in from Lord of the Flies. Jesus Christ on a bike. Wow. Hmm. But this is the thing. Lord, been... Lord of the Flies is a very, very colonialist story. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. In fact, The Guardian recently ran an article about a group of six boys who were marooned on an island in 1965, much the same way as in William Golding's book, only rather than caving each other's heads in with rocks and worshipping a pig's head on a stick, they were kind and supportive to each other. That's a kind of triumphant, real-life refutation of a dismal philosophy that gives me energy. Again, like, you know, all of, it's all sort of tied up in myopic 19th century knee-jerk reactions to pagan ceremonies. Mm. Like, H.P. Lovecraft would write something like this and go, yep, all cultists are like this. Fish fuckers, he'd say. The fish fuckers are after me. Oh, man, if this movie only had a Lovecraft monster in it. Hmm. <laughs> it's missing that. But, I mean, th- there isn't really much uh, else for us to say about what goes on after this. You know, it's just a series of events. They sneak into the Temple yeah. of Doom, try to get the Shankara Stones back. And I did ask Sharon this time, does it specifically matter which Shankara Stone he gets? Because he, he doesn't actually even look at the three of them and go, because, um, like, if he takes the wrong one back to the village, could he curse them? Yeah, they'd be like, didn't they? Oh, this is not ours. <laughs> didn't they give their particular stone a name? It was like S- Singalinga or something like Shivalinga. that. Like, yeah, it, Shivaling- yeah. Shivalingam. It's um, it refers to the fact that the stone represents uh, the penis. Brilliant. Ah, gotcha. It's a phallic symbol. <laughs> but they, the, all three stones, uh, and one assumes the other two that they're digging for, uh, look identical, and it just. I feel like there's a reason he doesn't de- deliberate because th- the screenwriters knew he was about to get captured anyway, so it doesn't matter. So it's it's a little detail. It doesn't make the film necessarily much worse, but it's it's another one of those, like, he was going to try and get Willie into his bedroom and shag her while Shorty was sleeping. Mm. Like, what? It, it's just, it's, it's one of the the many scenarios in this film that wasn't thought through well or properly. Well, again, it's like I said about... The absence of detail. Yeah, comparing it to the mythology of the Ark in Raiders. Mm. The mythology in that is presented as something which is... You you know, it's like, this might not be your mythology, Mm. but it is sacred and people revere it and it is worthy of respect. Mm. And they they demonstrate that with the whole, you know, even the Egyptians are showing respect to the the Hebrew myth that goes with this box. Mm. Whereas here, you can kind of feel George going, oh, I don't know, it's it's weird god stuff just stick it in there Carly I remember her from Jason and the Argon uh, which one was she, was she in uh... oh, no, the, the Golden Voyage of Sinbad there we go yeah. saw it on Sunday <laughs> afternoon one time uh, yeah so I mean the, the, honestly the Golden Voyage of Sinbad probably had more in- influence on this than anything else then mm. but I mean like Every Hindu god is important. That mm. they don't just like invent bad ones and go. Oh, I wish Kali didn't exist. That they they all have their place well, yeah, to maintain. The and things point. are out of balance when one 
becomes just too destructive. Yeah, the whole point of of Carly is that she's a, a, a she has an aspect of her which is a destroyer, but she is also a creator. She mm. has a part in the cycle which is to do with removing things that have passed their time. They do almost rescue it a little bit at the end when Indy says, you betrayed Shiva, which suggests that Shiva would disapprove of this particular uh, death cult Mm. in the same way that Jehovah does of the Nazis Mm. in uh, film one and film three. Yeah, although it would have been better if it had been Carly going, guys, you know nothing nothing of my my work. work. (laughs) (laughs) But honestly, it did occur to me what they could have done to make this better is don't make it a prequel. Make it a sequel to Raiders that happens maybe a year or two afterwards. Have it being about the Nazis going after some kind of Norse emblem or... And the digs for trinkets in the desert. Partnered up with uh, the, the pursuing of the Jewish mythology in Raiders and the Christian mythology in Last Crusade, you then have this trilogy of stuff which is about the Nazis being obsessed with just trying to find something that would give some spiritual validity to this empty, empty cult that they've got, yeah. Plan that they have. God, I was like, I, I like the bit um, where uh, it refers back to the uh, Cairo swordsman uh, when he's attacked by two guys with swords, and he goes for his gun, and it plays yes. on the uh, soundtrack. Yes. That's that's lovely. But almost immediately afterwards, when he runs to the other side, the British arrive to save the day, which it, this being India is really misjudged. <laughs> yeah. I think the thing I said before about relief is very important. You remember in Raiders where Marion get like sort of picks herself up after the snake pit bit and she's like she's holding onto a shoe and then she meets all of these desiccated corpses who go <gasps> at her and she's like screaming and screaming and then this one corpse has a giant python coming out of its mouth and she just loses her shit. And then Indy sort of pushes through and goes, Marion, come over here. We've got to go to the next scene. That's relief. And then they push through and then they're out of the pit. And then they're in back into the daylight. They've escaped from this horrible place. We get that relief. I am not against nasty in movies at all. I am not against nasty even in Indiana Jones films. You can't beat a bit of nasty sometimes. But there is a way of balancing it so that you get a little nasty and then a little fun. Little nasty, little fun. Just just to balance it out. The stretch, the sustain of nasty in Temple of Doom is like someone saying to you, do you want to hear the most annoying sound in the world? <laughs> and just they carry on. You're like, okay, I get it, I get it, I get it. And if it, it just, it's just a little too long without variation. No, they, they bookended the levity. They they gave you all of the silliness in the opening sequence and in the Pankot Palace and all of that. Mm. If you had had moments like that spiced throughout the movie, yeah. I mean, there's not even a there's not even an equivalent of everybody's lost but me in this. Those wonderful oh, yeah. like Indy in the middle of the insanity could have a little, you know, funny quib or funny aside or or whatever, and instead. The movie just decides to play it serious after they get into the temple, and it it's very jarring. 
I've just realised what it is that this is missing. You never see Indiana Jones in repose. You never see him reflect on himself. The the it, this the drama. Is all from, the, yeah, yeah. The, it, this is framed as though Shorty is telling this story, yeah. or maybe Willie is telling the story, the parts of the story when Shorty isn't there. Yeah. But you never get to see uh, Indy thinking about or examining his own part in proceedings, which mm. you do see in Raiders, you do see in Last Crusade. And the bit where um, Shorty saves him from the black sleep of Carly, the way to do that scene, it's just a little adjustment, but it would be that Shorty burns some guy, one of the thuggies, just to get him off him at one point, and then sees in his eyes, oh shit, where am I? Just like he sort of snapped out of his sleep, and then Shorty goes, aha, that's the key. Instead, he burns Indy in a kind of, I'll wake you up, the only way I know how, by burning you. And it, that, that's like, that, <laughs> that's the... <laughs> That's the just like that one time in Bangkok. I employ this kid as my alarm clock. Never fails. <laughs> but like, like that's the exact answer without being used because you figured it out somewhere there else. There's no experimentation. There's so it's it's a real like that obviously is not the thing that the whole film hangs on, but it is again emblematic of the the absence of detail, the absence of that structure, the writers of Howard the Duck. There's uh, there's two just, bits actually that are uh, were, that are worthy of note. One is uh, after the children have been whipped and and India's come out of his trance. The actual re-establishing shot of him standing there silhouetted again with the silhouettes. That's quite magnificent. Yes. And actually, this this other one isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it is a more complex element at the end uh when um because he's mentioned regarding the uh, shankara stones that they're full of uh, diamonds and he uh, referred to them as uh, fortune and glory kid to uh, uh shorty and then when willie asks him why didn't you keep it and why did you give it back to these people uh, for a start why are you even asking this question this was a miserable dead place of suffering with no children, and you've now seen it with all the children returned, <laughs> and like everybody's She's awful, everybody's happy, and uh, you know, like this this absolute evil has been vanquished. Why are you even asking this question? Uh, but she says, "Why don't you just keep it and you know sell it to a museum?" And he just says something along the lines of, "It would just be in a museum collecting dust." However. That means that he backslid immediately after this film, within the next year, because at the beginning of Raiders, he steals a golden idol from a bunch of the Hovidos natives to whom it really matters for the purposes of selling to Marcus for a museum. And then reminds you that in Last Crusade, that when he was a child... It belongs in a museum. That's been his thing his whole life, apparently. Yeah. So there Thanks, is... George. So there is, in fact, uh, a merit to this not actually being a prequel at all. It makes more sense if it, in fact, follows Raiders, that he starts by stealing the Golden Idol, and that this is, in fact, a step forward for him, realising that. So that then, when he gets the Cross of Coronado, finally, uh, he's like, you know, I'm bringing this back to the museum, but I'm... Well, we'll talk about that there. But it culminates in what he does with the Grail. So like that is much more of a straightforward track, but it screws the whole thing up if you make this a prequel. Mm-hmm. 
And you could say that to George till the cows come home. Honestly, talking about it like that, I think there was a uh, another way better villain just staring us right in the face. The British. Yeah, seriously. Have the, I, I, Ultimately, there was... Uh, I don't know if you've heard of PG Tips, uh, but it's a, a British tea. And uh, they the original uh, logo was a, 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 a Indian woman picking tea from a bush wearing an, an orange sari. And... Um, they stopped using that because it was a very fucking colonial image and they started using chimpanzees and uh, then they stopped oh. using real chimpanzees because it was cruelty to animals in their commercials from the 80s. You can look them up on YouTube and started using like a sock monkey belonging to a British comedian called Johnny Vegas because no one can say you're being cruel to a fictional monkey. But oh, that, boy. But that image of the, the, the tea-picking ladies abides, and I got a really hard dose of that when they come back to the village at the end. And it feels like, honestly, if you'd had like this British commander, Jason Isaacs, or the 1984 equivalent, go off the map and decide he's like got this diamond mind and he's he's kidnapped a load of uh, children from the, the the locals and is forcing them to use it by use of black magic because he's met some evil He's using the thuggy cult as yeah, a front. Yeah. Using the thuggy cult as a front and he's actually met a crazed um like you know the, you could still have Mola Ram there as well and have it be this parallel for the exploitation of colonialism forcing all this labor out of the people who live in this country and at the end like it's it's the rundown the film with the rock and sean william scott is a better ethically speaking version of this story especially because um uh, rosario dawson is like a cool version of uh, of (laughs) willie who's uh, like you know a local and is actually i'm doing this for my village One of the main reasons the rundown works, especially as a kind of a Western, is that while The Rock helps them deal with the most brutal and heavily armed of the thugs, the villagers end up saving themselves. I feel like a child who's put their tooth under their pillow, waiting for the tooth fairy to come in the morning and give me some money. Only two evil burglars have crept in my window and snatched it before she could get here. Afato, dos. Wait a second. Do you understand the concept of the Tooth Fairy? I love that movie so much. A little thunder, a little lightning. (laughs) There are, of course, a ton of sequences that we haven't really talked about. Sequences rather than elements to this. I mean, I, I don't know. Like when you've seen a hundred car chases and shootouts with gangsters, the one in this is is all right. You know, when you've seen things that approximate the minecart sequence, this one, it's alright. And as we said, the bit where the diamond goes missing amongst all that ice, and everyone's running all over the place, and Indy's trying to find the antidote, that's a great fun little opener, and I think it's so much fun, people kind of coast on that for a while. When you've seen the, I mean, the bridge sequence, because you know quite how much of that was practical, uh, that is impressive. There's a real sense of scale to the bridge sequence at the end. And the sets and the cameras are fine, and the, obviously the sound from Ben Burt is fine. But re- honestly, this feels more like a, a tech reel for what Industrial Light and Magic were capable of, uh, less than a film, a coherent film. And certainly less than a story where people learn and grow and the, the, the kind that we ask for now. 
and they were totally capable of it because this film is surrounded in Spielberg's oeuvre with a bunch of films that do exactly that. Including, and especially, Last Crusade, which is on the way, folks. And the School of Movies podcast is kept alive and afloat and flourishing by our lovely supporters on Patreon. And the $15 sponsors get named credit every episode, so thank you to Joel Robinson, Benjamin Biddle, Abel Savard, Michael Hasco, Trey Contreras, Matthew Webb, Connor Kennedy, Angus Lee, Marty Huey, David Sheely, Kevin Vey, Daniel Salguero, Brian Novak, Evan Jankowski, Sarah Montgomery, Dan Hepner, Johan Clayson, Tyler Long, Joe Gasiga, Greg Downing, Tim Rosensky, Christopher Wolf, Kat Esman, Cassandra Newman, Timothy Green, Matthew A. Siebert, Joseph Gluck, Nick Ord, Duran Barnett, Tom Painter, Finbar Nicole, Jameis Enright, Mark Luksch, Dan Mayer, Joe Crow, Chris Finnick, Toby Jungius, Dave Hickman, Aaron Lecluse, Kieran Dashler, Frankie Punzi, and Lorraine Chisholm. And this episode actually ended up running really long. The version I trimmed it down to was positively svelte. But if you are on our Patreon at the $5 level or above, you can listen to a 45-minute cutting-class episode of us and Chris just kind of running up and down the hallways at the Temple of Doom. We have um, the Cub Scouts. I don't know if that's a worldwide thing anymore. The Cub Scouts and the Boy Scouts are not. I, I can't even remember. Where they make you drink the blood of the Bobcat. Now, uh-huh. having seen this film, Spit it this out. It's bad. terrified me. <laughs> I think my most abiding memory of this is that I had an art teacher whose kids decided to name their new cat Willie because all she ever did was moan. And if that's not an indictment on the choices they made with this character, I don't know what is. I have donated to two charity funds connected with Black Lives Matter. There is Black Minds Matter, based in the UK, which is an organisation that connects black clients with black therapists, including providing financial support. These are two groups who respectively have a much tougher time being able to find mental health support and being able to attain the qualifications to practice due to the currently unfair system. And there is the Autistic Women and Non-Binary Network's Autistic People of Colour Fund. This US-based charity provides direct support, mutual aid and reparations. I have specifically focused on some of the most vulnerable and often most ignored members of society here. Sharon has also donated to the Black Journalists Therapy Relief Fund, which is financing mental health support for black journalists covering the BLM demonstrations. Throughout at least July and August 2020 and what remains of June, every single penny I make from sales of the New Century Multiverse audiobooks on Bandcamp will be donated by me to those above-mentioned charities. So if you've been holding back on buying these, any that you pick up this summer will have the proceeds going to some very good causes. And all the links to these can be found pinned to the top of both of my Twitter accounts.
So that was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. And uh, I think we've already kind of fixed it in, in kind of, you know, if you were going to go back and do it again, we got a pretty good show out of it in the end. Like, considering that I was watching it and going, oh, I don't know if I could talk about this film at all. Um, so thank you very, very much, Chris, for, uh, for assisting with that one. Like, and, and for your patience with me on that. Oh, I had an absolute blast. And thank you for having me on for Last Crusade as well, because I uh, that movie is so much more fun to talk about, oh, yeah. although it is great to talk about any movie with you guys <laughs> you're too kind thank you so before we catch the last elephant ride to delhi accompanied by a band of heroic colonial british soldiers who were definitely invited chris can you tell the folks at home where they can find the recent work of yours that you are most proud of oh man um well any show of school of movies that i've been on for BT, sure as a starter uh yeah coming up we've got uh last crusade and apparently you might be on oh i don't think i've asked you to come on do you want to come on crystal skull i would love to and and poltergeist oh. is coming up and poltergeist and ai is coming up as well it's a smorgasbord yes so get used to me guys if, if, <laughs> if you don't enjoy me don't worry sharon and alex will be there too no um <laughs> you, i think you can find it. me you can find me by searching the chippa made this that's where you'll find my four podcasts the Chipman Brothers Tangent, the Talkbuster podcast, Shooting the Shit with Chippa and Creating Geeks. Um, you can also go to YouTube and find me under Chris Chipman. Um, my most recent work that I'm really proud of was the Grumpy Old Geeks panel that I did with my brother, Bob Chipman at PAX East. And if you go over to the Escapists YouTube channel, the most recent episodes of The Big Picture and one of Bob's reviews, I was actually the voice for while he was uh, getting his voice back after having laryngitis. So... Um, that's me in a nutshell. I'm like Austin Powers trapped in a nutshell. <laughs> it feels about time we talk about Austin Powers. Maybe let's wait until the next Bond film comes out. So that'll be Check's Watch 2021. <laughs> I think that will about do it for Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. We will be back with a more serious angle with 1987's Empire of the Sun, which we have recorded recently with Brendan Agnew. Uh, that is a fairly harrowing film about the loss of innocence for a young boy during World War II. I would definitely recommend watching that film if you can take the subject matter it's only a pg technically so even though it is hard going and it's long and you feel every minute of it it's not too extreme in terms of what you see uh and it's it's more just how you feel for and, and again that sustain is pretty brutal only with this it's worth it uh, we will, of course, be back with Dr. Jones after that, with Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Until then, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. out.